Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah? We're actually going to be looking at three chapters today that are our unit, chapters 44 to 46, and talking about the God who knows the future. And obviously, it's a long passage of Scripture. I'm not going to read it all at the beginning. I'd like you to have your Bibles open to follow along as we refer to it through the message. And let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we come with reverence. We want to hear from you, and that's why we're here. We come to worship and to lift up your son, and we come to know you better. And so, Father, I pray that through your word this morning, you would minister to each one who is here, and I pray that you would encourage us, challenge us, give us strength for the things that we are facing in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Why do Christians believe that there is only one true God? Well, the short answer to that is that that is what the Bible teaches. I mean, we see it in the New Testament in the claims of Jesus, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We see it in the lives of the apostles and their teaching when they would say, uh, for example, in Acts 4.12, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other God, there's no other way of salvation other than through Jesus Christ. But that's not just in the New Testament. We also see it in the Old Testament in the writings of the prophets, and the passage that we're going to look at today is a prime example of these exclusive claims of God. For example, in these three chapters, seven times God is going to make this statement that he alone is God. We see it in Isaiah 44, 6, when he says, I'm the first, I am the last, apart from me there is no God. In 44, 8, he tells us there is no other rock, I know not one. In chapter 45, verse 5, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. A little later in chapter 45, he'll say, I am the Lord, there is no other. Again, in verse 21, he'll say, there is no God apart from me. In chapter 46, 9, he says, I am God and there is no other. And again, I am God and there is none like me. Now, you read that, it's pretty hard to miss the point of what he is saying here. I mean, he's repeating this over and over again, that I am God, and there is no other God. Now, Isaiah's belief in monotheism, in this one true God, was unique in the ancient world. I mean, we read that, and we uh, kind of take it for granted. You know, we, we've grown up believing in one God. And we have heard that taught over and over again. But at the time that Isaiah was writing, uh, the nations around Israel worshipped many gods. I mean, they had gods who controlled the weather, gods who controlled the, the wind and the rain or the storms, the hail and the lightning. They had gods for fertility. They had gods for wine, gods for pleasure, and gods for war. And there would be a, a chief god like Ale of the Canaanites or Marduk of the Babylonians or Ra of the Egyptians. But they worshipped many gods in this kind of pantheon. 
And so here you have Israel, the small nation, comes along, believes in one God. Why is that? You know, when you look at the world today, there are still many people who do believe in multiple gods. I mean, they may worship Buddha or Tao. Uh, They may have a tribal deity. Uh, They may offer gifts to their ancestors who have died. They may, uh, you know, offer gifts to a spirit that lives in a rock or a tree. And they have this kind of a cover-your-bases approach to religion that we've got to keep all of them happy because if we don't, they're going to mess up our life. And so they offer gifts or worship to many different gods. But in contrast, the God of the Bible declares to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That passage in Judaism, it is called the great Shema. Shema means hear ye in Hebrew. And it is this great call to worship the one true God. But how do you prove that there is only one true God? I mean, it's one thing to say that, but how do you prove that? It's not like a science experiment that you can repeat over and over again. How do you demonstrate, or what evidence can we give? Well, there are a lot of things we could look at if we had the time that come under the area of apologetics. Uh, It's why we've had our apologetics conferences here to teach and equip you in that area. But you could look at the evidence of design and creation to establish that there is a God. You could look at the power encounters that are in Scripture. Uh, You look at the Exodus event. That specifically was done so that God would demonstrate his power over each of the Egyptian gods. And in those ten plagues that affected Israel, I mean, you know, Egypt, this dominant superpower at that time, People at that stage had this belief that, you know, the strongest nation must have the strongest gods. You know, we're the, we're the big dogs on the planet, and so we must have the gods that are really the true gods. And here comes Moses, and he says to Pharaoh, I want you to let my people go. That's what God is saying. And Pharaoh's looking at him like, who are you? Why would I listen to a god of slaves? I mean, who do you think you are? And so you have this power encounter that is set up, and God demonstrates that he alone is God. You see it also in the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You got Elijah, you got 450 prophets of Baal. They both build an altar and put a sacrifice on it. And the challenge is the God that answers by fire, he is God. And the worshipers of Baal call out all day, and nothing happens. And Elijah calls out, and the fire from heaven falls, and it consumes not only the sacrifice, but the altar itself. And you see it in the miracles of Jesus, who demonstrated his power over nature, over sin, over death, over Satan. And all of those miracles were to demonstrate that he alone is God. We could look at the resurrection of Jesus. We could look at the evidence of changed lives. But one area that we are going to look at today is the area of biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy. Because in this 
passage, God stakes his reputation on his ability to predict the future and bring it to pass. He does what no other God can do. He declares what is going to happen in the future, and then he brings it about. We begin in this uh, passage, looking at chapter 44, that talks about the folly of idolatry. And we see that in verses 6 to 23. Let me read a little bit of it for you. Beginning in verse 6, he says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what is to come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. What God is doing here is God is challenging the nations to foretell the future and to do that with 100% accuracy. You have your gods? Okay, let's hear what they have to say. Let them tell what is going to happen hundreds of years from now and then bring it to pass. That test of 100% accuracy was something that God told the people of Israel to watch for back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, 21 to 22. He said, if someone comes claiming to speak for me and they tell you something's going to happen and it doesn't come to pass, that person's a false prophet. Don't listen to him. But if my people who have my worth and God would raise up prophets who would speak for him they would give both uh, prophecies that had a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment and the near fulfillment is what authenticated their message so that you would know that what they are saying about the future will also come to pass in verses 9 to 20 Isaiah takes us into the shop of an idol maker and with biting satire, he describes what we see there. Now look at verse 9. He said, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. So he's describing what's going to take place there, and he says, here you have an idol maker who takes a tree, a tree that is dependent upon God for its very growth and existence, and they will cut this tree in half. Out of one half, they'll use it to build a fire so they can cook some food over it or warm themselves, and on the other half, they'll carve it and shape this idol that can be overlaid then with gold or silver and metal, and then they'll bow down and worship it. And he goes, this is crazy. I mean, look at that. Verse 16, he says, Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat, eats his fill. He warms himself and says, oh, I'm warm. I see the fire. And from the rest he makes a god, his idol, and he bows down to it and worships it. And Isaiah says in verse 19, it's a block of wood. 
I mean, he's like, why are you worshiping this block of wood, you blockhead? I mean, don't you get this? Don't you see what is going on here? But they are blind to it. And they do not see the folly of what they are doing. Do you know, though, we share this same tendency to make God in our image. There are people today who worship gods of silver and money. They don't create an idol, but that is their aim in life. That's what they're committed to, is making a lot of money. Or there are people who seek fame and fortune, whose idol is success. But there are also many people who want to customize their God. And we even see it among people who would profess to be Christians, but they want to pick and choose what they believe about God. There are a lot of people who would like God to be sort of this grandfatherly image. You know, somebody who's kind of kind and benevolent, somebody who gives us stuff, you know, and somebody who kind of winks at our sin, you know, boys will be boys or girls will be girls, and, you know, he just kind of will let that go. And, and we don't like some things about God sometimes, so maybe people pick and choose. There are people who say, you know, I don't believe that God would send anyone to hell, and so they kind of want to, you know, toss that out and believe that in the end everybody will be saved. There are people who want to customize God rather than believe and worship the God of the Bible and obey what he has said. They want to fashion God in their image. And that's not the way that we approach God. People can make idols out of just about anything. Steve Jobs, who was Apple's late co-founder and CEO, had an incredible mind and gift for creativity. I mean, the things that uh, Apple has developed have affected all of our lives. But Jobs struggled with idolatry. And surprisingly, his idol wasn't technology, it was food. Steve Jobs was obsessed with food in ways that dominated his life and his relationships. As a teenager, he experimented with strange diets. At one point, he went for two weeks eating only apples. Uh, the various diets, often based on raw food, gave Jobs an exhilarating sense of control. But his biographer, Isaacson, talked about how when it was discovered that Steve Jobs had cancer, and he had a treatable form of cancer that if caught early, and it was, was usually treated by surgery, it could be removed, and he could have lived many more years. Well, he chose not to have surgery. And he chose, again, to deal with that cancer simply by his control of food. And what happened was his family, his friends were urging him and pleading with him to have the surgery, and he refused. It wasn't until over a year later that he consented to have part of his pancreas removed in surgery. And when he did, the doctors found that the cancer had spread, and he would never again be free of cancer. And eight years later, he would die at the age of 56. He was in the terminal stage, not of cancer, but of idolatry, when the idol ceased to deliver what it had promised. 
Here was a man who was brilliant in many ways, but who tried to control his life through food. And what he knew may have cost him his life. Our idols can't save us. Our sin can blind us. Our pride can get in the way of our relationship with God. What is the answer? Well, Isaiah tells us what the answer is in this passage. When we go down to verses 21 and 22 and 23, he begins by saying, remember. The first thing we need to do is remember that word that is so prominent in the book of Deuteronomy when God continued to call his people back to remember. Remember who I am. Remember what I have said. Remember what I have asked of you in the covenant that we have made. And then return. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I am your God. I am your Savior. And then he called them to worship, to sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all you trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he displays his glory in Israel. Remember who God is. Return. Repent of your sin and come back to me and worship with a right heart. Secondly, we see in this section that God is the Lord of history, and we see that in chapter 44, verses 24 into the next chapter. The same God who decreed that Jerusalem would be destroyed because of its sin now declares that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who has made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets, who makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins, I will restore them. Now, you need to know the timeline of what's going on here to really catch how powerful this is. Isaiah wrote around the year 700 B.C., 701 B.C., right in there, okay? Assyria was the dominant power at that time, and Assyria was marching through the Middle East, 732, city of Damascus falls, Syria falls. 722, northern tribes of Israel fall, Samaria falls, the capital of the northern ten tribes of Israel. And they're marching through. They're like a flood going across the land. And Isaiah predicted that Jerusalem would be spared. In chapter 8, he said to Ahaz the king at that time, he said, Assyria is going to come in like a flood and it's going to come up to the neck. In other words, it's like only the head's going to be kept above water. And he's talking about Jerusalem. And so this army comes marching across the land, 200,000 or more that they're coming in, they're marching across the land, they're taking city after city. They come to Jerusalem and they begin to taunt the people in the city of Jerusalem. So, what makes you think your gods are going to spare you? 
your gods any stronger than the gods of these other cities? Didn't these other cities have bigger gods than you had? Who's your God? Who does he think he is? And they're mocking the God of Israel. And Hezekiah goes before the Lord, and he takes this letter that is there, and he places it before the Lord, and he cries out to God for mercy and deliverance. And Isaiah comes, and he says, it's not going to stand. They will not take this city. And that very night, an angel of the Lord goes out and kills 185,000 men in the Assyrian army. You can read it in Isaiah chapter 37. Sennacherib, this was another part of that prophecy. Sennacherib would return home in disgrace and he would be killed in his own land. And that's what happened. 20 years later, he's in worshiping his God in the temple and his own sons kill him in the temple. Isaiah predicted, though the destruction of Jerusalem would come, but it would be by the hand of the Babylonians, and that would happen in 586 B.C., more than 100 years later after he wrote. And then he told them something else that God had said, that God declared that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And it wouldn't be by the Babylonians, it'd be by another nation, another power that would come on the scene in the Middle East. And he gives them the very name of the ruler who would do it, Cyrus. You want to know that our God knows the future and can bring it to pass? This is one of the most amazing prophecies in Scripture. He's talking about hundreds of years. He's talking about nations that aren't even on the scene yet as dominant powers coming to power. I mean, who is Cyrus? Well, Cyrus is this pagan ruler who comes to power in 559 B.C. as the head of the Medes and Persians, and then he defeats the Medes, so he's this Persian ruler who in 539 B.C., he will conquer Babylon. He will reverse the deportation policy of Babylon. Babylon had taken people out of their land. He's going to send them back to their homeland, and he will give the order to rebuild Jerusalem. He will give the order to rebuild the temple, and he sets the captives free, and he even commands that the payment for the temple should come out of their treasury. I mean, it's a stunning prophecy, and you can imagine people hearing it at that time going, Isaiah, are you nuts? I mean, who even are these people? And how is this going to happen? Well, the decree that Cyrus gave is recorded in Ezra. Chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it's all there. It's written down as a matter of history. In fact, it is so accurate that critics of the Bible want to dismiss all of this on the basis of an anti-supernatural bias. They just don't, they don't believe in God, so they don't believe anything supernatural can happen. Therefore, this is impossible, and they just want to write it all off and say that, you know, it had to be written after the fact. I mean, you know, somebody later, not Isaiah, had to be writing all this stuff down so that it would exactly fit what happened in history. Well, that's where archaeology comes in. That's what made the Dead Sea Scroll discovery so significant. And I think it's interesting. Isaiah is this amazing book 
Isaiah, you know, great prophet in the Old Testament, wrote all of this. Critics don't even like that. They like to think that there were multiple authors of Isaiah. They especially break it after chapter 39. They take 40 to 66. They say it had to be a second Isaiah who wrote this. And so what do you have? Dead Sea Scroll discovery out of all the books that could have been found intact, the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters the Isaiah Scroll. Israel builds a museum, and the feature of it is this Isaiah Scroll that is rolled out so that you can see it. And it's there. It was more than a 1,000 years older than any other copies we had had of Isaiah or of the Old Testament. When they compared it, you know, they could see how accurate this has been translated. I mean, it was staggering. They dated it back to the, at least the second century B.C., and it is a copy. It's not the original. Nobody's claiming that. And if you say, well, that's still after these events that occurred with Babylon, yes, but it is still before all of the predictions that Isaiah gave about John the Baptist and Jesus, the Messiah. How do you explain that? I mean, that's why we have great confidence in this book. The naming of Cyrus is the capstone of God's argument in this passage that he alone is God, and it is stunning. I mean, God calls Cyrus my shepherd, and he calls him my anointed. Look at verse 28. He says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And this is what the Lord says to his anointed. Anointed is Mashiach, or it's Messiah, or it's Christ. It's that same word, and now he's calling Cyrus my Messiah. And that's, that just had to blow the mind of the Jews at that time going, I don't get this. This guy's a pagan king. To the best of our knowledge, he never came to place his trust in God. He continued to worship his idols, and yet he knew, he knew that something was going on here. He could read it himself that God's, God had chosen him. The naming of Cyrus, again, is the capstone of God's argument that he alone is God. And why did God do it this way? He did it so that Cyrus would know that he is the Lord. He did it so that Israel would know that the Lord is God. And he did it so that the world would know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And that's what you see in this text. He said in verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name. And why did he do all of this? He did it for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. He's talking about Cyrus. You don't acknowledge me, but I have called you and I've raised you up for this purpose, for the sake of my people. God does everything for the sake of his name and for the sake of his people. 
And he did it again, it says, so that the world would know that apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none other besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. John Oswalt, in his commentary, wrote that it is because of Cyrus that an Israel survived through whom the Christ would come to save the world. And someday, because of Cyrus, every knee will bow to God in Christ. That's an amazing statement. This man served a function in God's plan, even though he was a pagan. God used him. I look at that, and I will say, if God can use Cyrus, then the Lord can use whoever wins this presidential election for his purposes. You know what I mean? God could use Hillary Clinton. God could use Donald Trump to accomplish his purposes in America. We don't know what he's doing at this time in history and what, what he may want to have happen in our country. But he does call us, his people, to pray and to trust him. And that's what he was calling Israel to do when they looked at what was going on in their land and they saw all of these things happening and they trembled in fear and they questioned what God was doing. God called his people to trust him and obey him. And we see that in chapter 46. Let me read a little bit out for us. He writes in verse 1 that Bel bows down and Nebo stoops low. Those are the gods of the Babylonians. Bell's bowing down, Nebo's stooping low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome. They are a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. I mean, he's talking about these great gods of Babylon who are powerless, who need to be carried about, and they are a burden to their people, and they cause their people to be weary, and they can't save themselves. When that day comes, Babylon will go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain in the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you. I will rescue you. Do you get this? He's saying, Bel and Nebo bow down, stoop low. They must be carried. They are a burden. But in contrast, it is God who carries us. And he will carry us even to our last breath. Even to our old age when our hair turns gray and we are too feeble to walk and we need to be helped or moved about. God is there and he will carry us. Why did God take such pains to tell his people these things in advance? It is because he wanted them to know that the events of the exile were not a surprise to him. He wanted them to know that he was still in control of the nations and that nothing would happen to them outside of his perfect will. 
Israel went into captivity for one reason and one reason alone. They had broken their covenant with God. And God had called them time and time again to turn, to come back to him, to repent of their sin, and they would not. And so they went into captivity. But he had always promised that a remnant would return and that the Messiah would come. Through Jeremiah the prophet, he would tell them that it would be 70 years that they would be in captivity. 70 years, specific. Daniel, when he's in captivity, can have his quiet time in Jeremiah and can read the text, look at the calendar and say, Eureka, you know, we're, we're getting close here. This is, this is the time. We need to get ready. God keeps his word. And most of all, he wanted them to know that he was still with them. Turn to me and be saved, he will say. My purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. I am God, and there is no other. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the Christ figure is a lion named Aslan. And there's a scene in the book, The Silver Chair, where Jill, one of the characters in that story, encounters Aslan. And she bursts into the opening of this forest, and she is thirsty. She is desperately thirsty, and she spies this stream in the distance. And she doesn't rush forward to throw her face into it. She freezes in fear because there is a lion resting in the sun right beside the stream. It is Aslan, and she doesn't know him yet. She has not come to believe in him. And the lion speaks to her and says, are you not thirsty? And she says, I am dying of thirst. Well, then drink, said the lion. And she says, may I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had taken a step nearer. And she asked him, do you eat girls? <laughs> and he said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And the lion did not say this as if it were boasting, it didn't say it as if it were angry. It didn't say it as if it were sorry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose then I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream. You see what Lewis is saying there about Christ? He is saying that we must come to God the Father through Christ his Son, or we do not come at all. 
he's capturing the heart of this passage, the heart of what Jesus said, that we must come to God the Father through Christ his Son, or we do not come at all. You can go ahead to the conclusion, a couple slides ahead. I look at how that is pictured. There's no other stream. There's no other fount. There's no other place to find refuge. 2,700 years have passed since Isaiah wrote this book. And where are the gods of Bel and Nebo? They are no more. But the God of Isaiah, the God of the Bible, remains. And he is worshipped by over two billion people around the world. He alone is God. There is no other. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a powerful passage. And what a powerful statement that you have made about your uniqueness. That you alone are God. And it is only through your Son that we can come into a relationship with you. I pray today if there's anyone here or anyone who's listening online or who will be listening to the CDs, that if you have not come into a relationship with God the Father through his Son, that you would turn to Jesus today and ask him to forgive your sins and to come into your life and be your Savior and Lord, that you would drink of that only stream that offers life and refreshment and salvation. Come to Christ and be saved. And Father, for all of us in uncertain times as we have talked about, I pray that we would place our hope and our confidence in you. You are our rock. You are our Savior. And you are the God who is in control of history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.